You know how we deserve a raise for this. You know how we do this in the beginning? Verse number 12, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. So before we dig in, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and just ask him to help us understand his word this morning. God, we uh, thank you just for this opportunity to be able to stare into your word, to be able to hear it. Uh, God, I pray that we just wouldn't hear it, that we'd be doers of it. I pray that we just wouldn't just rustle the pages of scripture, but God, that our hearts would be rustled today. That God, we would not be comfortable, that Lord, as we stare into your word, we would, uh, we would be brought into the light marvelous light, Lord, that we would see our need for you, our need for grace, that God, our sin would be exposed, that God, repentance would happen, that we would turn from that sin, that your scriptures would cause us to lament. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just stay in our sins, or we just wouldn't continue in our lamenting, but our lamenting would be turned into joy as we recognize that Jesus has been all the things that we can't be, that Jesus has satisfied every requirement of the law, that Jesus has lived the life that we couldn't live, that he fulfilled every command perfectly, that he is the spotless lamb of God, and that that righteousness today has been given to me, that when you look upon me, you no longer see Josh Brown, you no longer see those who are gathered here, you see your son Jesus, you see his righteousness. It is his hands, his wounds that plead my case. And God, we're able to come boldly before you, to this throne of grace, to obtain help. And we ask that you would help us this morning. God, that you would put the distractions and the cares of this world in the background. And that, Lord, they would be eclipsed by the glory of you. That we would stare into your word and see the greatness of the God that we serve. And God, may we be changed people for your honor and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we dig into this passage, I mean, this is one of the most, I mean, amazing passages about the scripture and all of the scriptures. It's one that we probably, you probably have committed to memory. Um, if you came up through Awana or you just in Sunday school, if you're in the Christian school, I mean, chances are somebody's going to have you memorize Hebrews chapter number four and verses number 12. And so a lot of you have that committed to memory. Um, it's a vitally important passage, and uh, it's one that really has driven a 
lot of reform, a lot of reformations. And so Reformation Day is tomorrow. So I thought I would be uh, remiss to not talk about the Reformation. And uh, Frank Cook, speaking of the Protestant Reformation, where uh, the church recovered the scriptures. uh, And after being in the darkness of having the Bible removed from the church and and being under only the purview of the priest and the church, uh, when the scripture was returned to the people, uh, it really drove the Protestant Reformation so much so that Frank Cook says the foundation of every reformation of the Holy Spirit is the word of God made plain to people. And so that's the privilege that we have today is having the word of God and it being made plain to people. And so out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, that's what we were protesting, right? We're still protesting. Um, And part of that is that scripture alone is sufficient. We say sola scriptura, that scripture alone is authoritative and is supreme over everything else. That the oracles and, and the words of the Pope are not to be held in the same, with the same regard as the holy scriptures and so when the scriptures were returned to the people by folks like William Tyndale and and those who really labored to make sure that the common everyday person had a bible in their hands that's really when the reformation broke forth but did you know that there were other reformations So these are lesser reformations that aren't really talked about so much. And we celebrate October 31st as Reformation Day. And we all look back to the Protestant Reformation. But way before the Protestant Reformation, there was the Deuteronomic Reformation. You say, what? What is the Deuteronomic Reformation? Well, this is a reformation that happens in 2 Kings 22. And so if you want to look there, just jot that down. I'll tell you what happened. It was a reformation that really didn't happen by intention. It was accidental. It was an accidental reformation. And so what had happened was there was a young king uh, named Josiah. Not our Josiah, another Josiah. Uh, This young king, I believe, was like eight years old when he came in to uh, rule and reign over Judah. Um, And so King Josiah wanted to bless the Lord. He wanted to be a righteous king and do what was right. So he began that by fixing up the temple. And so he started doing just kind of surface improvements, just sprucing the place up a little bit. It was dilapidated. It had really fallen into unrepair. And so he decides to charge the high priest to start making these repairs. Now, Josiah was motivated out of two reasons. One was probably out of sincere religious devotion. He wanted to do right. He wanted to be a righteous king. But second was shame. Because the rundown state of the building symbolized the spiritual malaise of the people. And so when you looked at the temple and it was just disheveled and it was uh, in disrepair, that really said a lot about the priorities of the people. I love that because, you know, in our church, we've spent a lot of time fixing up the building. And there was a time in my life where I would say, ah, that's just, you know, it doesn't have a lot of value. But, you know, the reality is, is that it does have some value because it shows us the things that we value. And so in that time, the people were, were not valuing the things of the Lord. The building was run down, and it just showed, it demonstrated their spiritual malaise. But also, on the flip side, sprucing up a building only does so much, right? I mean, the Jesus chides the Pharisees because he says they're like whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of rot. And so while Josiah was busy sprucing up the building, and now that's not wrong or unimportant, it could only do so much. And these were merely surface improvements. And while undertaking these surface improvements, something much more important happened. 
Something was discovered that could do far more than just these surface improvements. And so 2 Kings chapter number 22 and verse number 8 says that Hilkiah, the high priest, comes and he talks to Shapen, the secretary, and he says these words. He says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Have you guys ever found something really important? Isn't that a cool experience? I mean, could you imagine? I mean, they're just kind of dusting things off. The the temple has been in disrepair. I mean, it's been neglected. Um, And they are there and they're fixing it up. And in the process of fixing it up, in one of the closets, they find the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And so Hilkiah gives this book to Shapen and they read it. I mean, it had been lost for years and years and years. And although it seemed like this happened by accident, It was no accident, right? It was the providence of God. Just as Josiah wanted to bless God by fixing up the temple, God ultimately blessed Josiah by putting into his hands the most powerful force in the world for reformation and revival, for hope and for joy and for peace and salvation, the word of God. So what a cool thing that is in just that story that is their dusting. They come across the Bible. And that's why they call it the Deuteronomic Reformation, because it's presumed that what they found was a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God. And so it wasn't long after the word of God was returned to Jerusalem that substantive changes begin to happen. And so this is what's recounted to us in the book of 2 Kings, is these changes. So Josiah gets the scriptures and he starts reading them. Prior to that time, he wasn't familiar with them. He didn't have them. They weren't plain to the people. And so he gets the scriptures. He starts digging in. And it's not very long before he tears his clothes to lament what had been absent from Israel's life for so long. You know, I wonder today if this book has been absent from our life for a long time. You know, maybe it's set there on the shelf, maybe it's there in the bookcase, maybe we pick it up on Sunday morning, but we've just, it's been away from us. We've not been in it, we've not been in our abide reading. And so maybe that's our first step today, is to, to tear our clothes in repentance like Josiah did, and lament what's been absent from our life for so long. To be honest with God and say, I've not meditated upon your word day and night. I've not been in the scriptures the way that I should. But not only did he tear his clothes to lament, the absence of the scriptures, but then he does something else. He gathers the most godly people around God's word to study it, to give themselves to it. So they found the book of the law. They've lamented that they had lost it. Now they are dedicating godly folks to studying it. And so that's why we come on Sunday morning. We open the scriptures together. That's why the guys are going to meet on Monday to open the scriptures together. That's why on Wednesday at our ladies' prayer study, they open the scriptures. I mean, we are giving ourselves to the study of the word of God. But it's not enough just to study it, right? Not enough just to be a hearer of it. Not enough just to turn its pages. We want the pages of our heart to be turned, right? I mean, the reason that we're studying this is that we want to have power and movement in our sanctification. That we don't want to stay stagnant and in the same place. And so they have to put into practice the things which they read in the scriptures. And then ultimately what we see is renewal of the covenant with God. That that covenant that had been promised to them is renewed and the restoration of the blessings that were promised through it that come from faith were restored. The reformers called this post-tenebras lux, after darkness light. 
that what was lost was the word of God. And when the word of God was found, it ushered in just this marvelous light. What Josiah in Jerusalem learned so many years ago is something that the godly have been learning forever. And that is what the Apostle Peter wrote in the first epistle. In 1 Peter 1.23, he says that we, those of us who are in the church, who have been called out of the world, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God. And that all flesh, all of us, are like grass, and the glory like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so that's the word that was preached to us. That's the world that has called us out of darkness and into light. And so when we study, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In verse number 12, he says, for. What an important word. I think Pastor Reese mentioned that. Anytime you see word, the word for, you should study that out. Because it's connecting. Everything that we've read in Hebrews 3 and 4 is now about to get kind of tethered to, uh, to the reason why it is true. You have the exhortation in verse number 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And why should we give heedance to the exhortation? Why? Because the word of God is living and active. Now, our students have the opportunity to study Greek here at the Christian school. And if we had some of them here, we could uh, ask them this Greek question. How do we know what is most important in Greek is oftentimes by the, the sequence in which the words are, are given to us. And so the word living comes first in this sentence. And so we know that it is of most importance. So when we look at the word of God, the writer of Hebrews says that the first thing that we need to know is that the word of God is living. And so what an amazing truth that is. The word of God is living. And so we see that in this passage. I think one of the things that's interesting is just when we talk about living, what is living? Well, the word of God is living, but there's a particular word that is living here. You know, we talk a lot of times about taking things out of context. And we talk about Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And we shouldn't rip that out of context. But, you know, it's funny because we actually take Hebrews 4.12 out of context a little bit. Now what the writer of Hebrews is going to say is important and certainly all of the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword but there's a particular word here that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This whole exhortation is based on scripture, right? It is tethered to scripture. In fact, we could say and this might be something to, to jot down in your Bible that every exhortation should be tethered to scripture. And so that means every public discourse, every sermon, every word that we counsel another believer with, everything that comes out of our mouth should be tethered, should be tied to the scriptures. And so our writer of Hebrews has done that, right? And this is a marvelous exhortation in three and four, but it is worthless if it's not tethered to scripture. Is it tethered to scripture? It is. It's tethered to Psalm 95. He quotes it. And you can even see that in the ESV. It's indented. And so you can see in the footnote, it takes you back to the original scripture. And so he has grounded his argument on citations from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 95. And so when we talk about it, we talked a couple weeks ago about the history of Psalm 95. It's written by King David about 1,000 years before the writing of Hebrews. 
And so David wanted to give his readers an exhortation. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to give them a word from the Lord. And so he did so by reflecting on the unbelief of the Exodus generation. And so David wrote, He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And so David quotes this. David's thinking about that Exodus generation, and he exhorts in 1000 BC his own audience with this word that is tethered to the scriptures. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to pick it up, and he's going to say not only was that exhortation true in 1000 BC, it is true today for Hebrew believers. It is true for them. It is not just merely applicable and relevant. It is authoritative over those who read it. And that's also true for us today. And so here at Emmanuel, these words are alive and available to us. And that's why we give ourselves to expository preaching. It's not just that it makes life a little easier for Pastor Reese and I. It does, certainly. But it's because we believe that these words, our exhortations, ought to be tethered to the Scripture. And so that's exactly how we try to preach. We go verse by verse, book by book, through the Scriptures. What an awesome thing that is. And we do it because we believe that the scriptures that were given in this day are still applicable, relevant, and authoritative for us today. And so what Pastor Reese and I try to do is we try to bring you to the word. We don't try to be crafty in our sermons. Some of you say, well, we get that. We definitely recognize that. We don't try to be real original. Um, We don't really wrestle with how do we make this relevant for you. Because the scriptures, they'll need to be made relevant. We simply need to bring you to the word and say that this is a living word. Submit to it. Order your life around it. Conform to it. And live with it. It's important that our exhortations are tethered to scripture because those are the only exhortations that inspire faith. And so that's what we see in this book of Hebrews. These readers or these, uh, these Hebrew believers were beginning to face persecution. Perhaps they were losing their jobs or their property because of their belief or their faith in Christ. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying to them is when they ask the question, why should we sacrifice our labor, our worldly goods, and even our lives for the sake of Jesus? He's saying because these words... The words of scripture spoken by David in Psalm 95 are not old news. They're not irrelevant spiritual musings. They're the very word of God. They're living and active even today. And in them, your destiny is bound up through either belief or unbelief. And so the question we have to ask is, how is this possible? How can this be? I mean, that's what the skeptic would say is, I mean, you must must be out of your mind, Pastor Josh, to think that these words spoken by David in 1000 BC are relevant today in 2022? I mean, how can a man-written exhortation inspire faith? I mean, wasn't David just a man? Wasn't he flesh and blood? I mean, same about Paul and Peter. I mean, after all, these are just the words of a man. How could the words of a man be living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword? 
And to that, we would respond because they're not just merely the words of man. They are God's words. The writer of Hebrews has labored to make this point. In Hebrews 1, he says, God spoke. In these last days, God spoke to us. And he spoke by the prophets. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is going to say time and time again, as God has said, as the Holy Spirit says. And so when we read the words of Psalm 95, we read any words that are contained in this book, we ought to not first think that they are the words of a mere man, but that they are the words of God. And so that's how it can be, that something written in 1000 B.C., can be just as relevant, just as important, just as authoritative today as they were then. Now, we don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that human authors pen the Bible. That 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture was breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. And God used human instruments. He blew through them and out comes their personality and their experiences And their actual circumstances. The scriptures are colored by these human authors. When we study Luke, we see a doctor who loves detail. When we study Peter, we see somebody who can sometimes let his mouth uh, speak a little too freely. We see Paul, we see somebody who loves logic and argumentation. And God uses that human instrumentation. But ultimately the source is God. And God gives us these scriptures. They're breathed out by him, expiated. Why? Well, the next verse tells us that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. You say, I want to move in my Christian life. I I, I know the writer of Hebrews has given me the direction. My rudder is right, but I want movement in my life. You need the scriptures. There is nothing else. There is no substitute. Nothing is going to put air in your sails as the scriptures will. Nothing else will lead you into light. Paul tells us that the word is outbreathed, expiated by God. That the source is God. But thankfully Peter tells us how. How that comes about. And so in 2 Peter 1.20 and verse number 21, Peter says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when we read the Bible, you're reading human words, you're reading human instruments, But it didn't come from their own interpretation. It didn't come from them. They're not the source. We should read the word of God as God's word to us. Every part of it. 2 Peter 1.19 says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So in other words, until we are face to face with Jesus, we ought to be staring into this word. Because it is the source of light to us. Not only is it the source of light, it is the source of life. So we see that God's word, the writer of Hebrews says, is living. But it's not just that it is living, it is the means in which we live. Without the Bible, we die. With it, we live. And so this is what makes the Bible so profitable to us. 
This is why this exhortation is is valuable, because it is tethered to the scriptures. Through the Bible, God himself teaches us. He rebukes us. He corrects us. He trains us in righteousness and equips us for every good work. When we come to faith in Christ, and I I put a little side note here, we come to consciousness. When we finally see, when light hits our pupil and we see things for how they really are. When our heart and mind is open to the teachings of the Bible. Either as it is preached or either as you read it, the word comes alive within you. Why? Because it has been sent by God himself for that very purpose. The word lives and acts in you. As an emergency medical technician, I've been able to witness the miracle of resuscitation. And it's really an amazing thing. Somebody loses consciousness. Maybe their heart is not got a rhythm that is able to sustain life. For all intent and purpose, they have died. And that EMT will reach down and, and will breathe breath into them. And that air goes through the body. And next thing you know is it profuses those organs. And everything starts to come online. And so that's kind of the example, the miracle of profusion. And that's what the word is telling us. Is that God is resuscitating us through his word. That God is breathing it. He is expiating, exhaling it. And we are inhaling it. And as the word is inhaled, it goes throughout our atoms and it regenerates us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Romans tells us. That faith, consciousness, comes by hearing the word of God. And only by the word of God. Nothing else has that power. You can read books And they may warm your heart, but they cannot make a dead man come to life. When God breathed into Adam and Eve in the garden, they were quickened. They were made alive by the breath of God. And Paul says the breath of God are the words that you have in this book. They are God-breathed, theonoustos. They are expiated by God. Martin Luther says if the man would hear God speak, then read the Holy Scriptures. Thomas Watson said, by reading other books, the heart may be warm, but by reading this book, your heart can be transformed. It is truly life, and it is in the word of God. And so not only is God's word life, but it's penetrating. And so we see this in chapter number 4 and verse number 12. For the word of God is living and active. What word? Well, certainly this is applicable to all the words, specifically Psalm 95 is living, and it is active. And what else does he go on to say? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Scripture loves to use the imagery of the Bible as a sword. And not just any sword, but a two-edged sword. And there's a reason for that. Because in the one part, it exposes us and it brings us to life. But on the other side of the sword, it condemns and brings justice. And so the same sword is able to do both. It's able to heal, and it's also able to condemn. And so the word of God does that. And the Bible loves to refer to itself as a sword. Ephesians 6.17, passage we're familiar with, taking on the armor of Christ. What is that sword? The sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. The word is oftentimes referred to as a sword. Not only is the word of God referred to as a sword, but Jesus, 
the word, the logos, is also out of his mouth, Revelation says, comes a sharp two-edged sword. The words of Jesus are as a sword. Scripture sometimes also uses a fire and a hammer as ways of describing its work. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, God's word is like a fire and like a hammer that can break a rock into pieces. And so what we see is the penetrating and the piercing power of the scriptures. He goes on to say that not only is it like a two-edged sword, and not only is it sharper than any two-edged sword, but it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit. I used to get really hung up on this. Um, I I think it was out of a desire. I think it was out of pride, honestly. Um, I remember in my first church spending a lot of time talking about whether I was a dichotomist or a trichotomist. And you say, I don't even know what that is. That's the point. Like, I want to sound really smart by using big words. And so basically, it boils down to, like, do you believe that man has two parts or three parts? And so if you're a dichotomist, you say man has a material and an immaterial. He has a physical body, flesh, and then he has a soul. If you're a trichotomist, you say that he has a physical body, and then you also have a soul, and then you also have a spirit. And so some people will use this passage of scripture to say that we are trichotomy, that we are a trichotomy, that we are composed of three parts. And they do that because this writer of Hebrews says the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword pierces and divides what? The soul and the spirit. So you say, see, there you go, Pastor Josh, there are two parts to man. But that's not the intent here. This isn't about, nowhere else in scripture, by the way, does it mention that we are a trichotomy. It always speaks of just material and immaterial. And we could, I mean, you could go to great lengths to try to figure out where that dividing line is between soul and spirit. And is spirit your God consciousness? And is your soul just your general consciousness? But we're missing the forest for the trees, right? I mean, we're getting too far into the weeds because the idea is that the word of God is really sharp. And it's able to pierce, and it can get to your soul, it can get to the innerward part of you. That even though you come across some people who are really hard-hearted, the word of God is able to overcome it. And that's an encouragement for us, it's an encouragement to me, because sometimes I look in the mirror and I say, man, I'm really stubborn, really hard-hearted. Some of you have husbands who are really stubborn, you've got wives, you've got kids who are just hard-hearted. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't lose heart. Because the word of God is sharp and it is able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit to get to the innerward part of man. And he goes on to say that exactly. He says not only does it pierce the division of soul and spirit, but of joints and of marrow. This is really cool. So you know what a joint is, right? It's bone. And so we'll give you a little guys a little anatomy lesson. Maybe you already know. But what is inside of bone is it's a channel. It's like conduit. It's really hard on the outside. I mean, your bone is hard. But on the inside is this soft, squishy stuff called marrow. And, uh, and inside of it is where red blood cells are made. And so sometimes you have to get the marrow. You've got to extract it. It's a really painful thing. They take this ginormous needle and they just jam it through your bone to the innerward part to extract the marrow. I remember uh, watching 
Some surgery is being done, and Wendy's not here, thank Jesus, uh, because hopefully, Wendy, if you're watching online, kind of turn away from this. Um, this she's, she's about to have surgery on her hip, and I remember watching some videos of orthopedic surgeons, and I was amazed. I don't know what I thought, but I thought when they were operating on bone, you know, maybe they used a scalpel, something kind of gentle. You watch an orthopedic surgeon, and they come out with this guy. Like, <laughs> they come out with a sawzall. And it is really, really traumatizing when you watch that. Like they're just there falling down that joint and then connecting a new one. And I mean, if you didn't, I mean, that's, that's, that's traumatizing, right? So, Wendy, you can look now. Um, I thought about it. It's Halloween. I thought about putting a mask on, kind of like a year's Johnny thing. But um, this, is, uh, this is the idea behind the scriptures is the word of God is sharp. And it is piercing, and there is no hardness that is able to withstand it. It will cut through the bone and get to the soft innermost part. So I want you to think of this image the next time you read the Bible. It's not just a scalpel. It's a saw. It is powerful. It has piercing power. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That it's able to discern your thoughts and your intentions. That no creature is hidden from his sight. The word of God cracks open that chest bone and lays you bare. So that your innermost thoughts and motives and desires are known before God. The Bible says that the word of God always accomplishes its purpose. That there's no amount of hardening your heart that can withstand it. That the word of God will penetrate you. You cannot, it, the Bible, I love it, where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. The idea was that he could somehow harden it to where the word of God wouldn't reach it. And some of you do that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You harden your heart, you hunker down, but you need to know that the word of God is a sawzall and it, you, nothing can withstand it. It will cut you open, and you may think, no, it's not getting to me, but it is. It is either condemning you or saving you. And as you harden your heart against the word of God, it is doing its work. You may not think it is, but it is testifying of the condition of your soul. Whether that is being mixed with faith that leads to salvation or mixed with unbelief that brings condemnation, the word does what the word is intended to do. And so not only is it life-giving, not only is it penetrating, but it's sufficient. And that's what the reformers found out. Sola Scriptura, King Josiah, all of the godly men of old figured this out. The word of God is all you need. That it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It is good for salvation that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that we are regenerated, that we are brought to belief by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. It's also good for sanctification, that we go from faith to faith, and that our faith is inspired by the word of God. That we read the scriptures, we see God, and we're brought to faith in him, to trust him more and more. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed, sanctify them, Lord, in the truth, your word is true. And so we close today with just this thought. We've got to commit ourselves to the word of God. That it is sufficient 
that it is able to bring light. That we need to, like Josiah, we need to lament when we're not giving ourselves to it, when it is lost. If it is at home and you don't know where it is, by all means, go find it. Go bring it into view. Bring it to the coffee table. Bring it to your work, at your desk, wherever you need to have it. But then don't just bring it, study it. Open it, read it, commit yourself to it. But then do it. Let it have its work in you. Let it lay you bare. Don't be ashamed. Don't, don't be worried about the scriptures laying you bare because it's in that moment the grace of God is able to heal. That God already knows who you are and how you are. God already knows your thoughts. You've already been laid bare before him. One of the things that I, I love about the scriptures is that we are more wicked than we ever dare imagine. But God already knows that. And we are loved more than we could ever imagine. That the grace of God, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The grace of God is able to overcome any matter of wickedness. If God is able to take Paul a murderer and make him a missionary, God can save you through his word. And he delights to do so. And so bring out the scriptures. Give yourselves to them. Get in your abide journal. Read why? Because Isaiah 55.10 contains one of the most amazing promises in all the word. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth not return to me empty, but will accomplish that which I purpose and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just as rain and snow come down from heaven and they don't go back, it comes down and it just saturates the soil and it brings forth fruit and it gives seed to the sower and it gives bread to us to eat. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. So shall the word that comes out is expiated by God, inhaled by us, through the reading and through the preaching of his word, is going to not return empty. It's going to saturate us. And it's going to do what it was sent to do. Either condemn us in our unbelief or save us in our belief. Those are the two choices. And so I would just ask you, Emmanuel, today, give yourself to this word. It is relevant. It's applicable. It's authoritative. It is for you by the providence of God. So let's go ahead and we'll pray. God, we thank you uh, just for this uh, group who is assembled to hear your word. God, I pray a blessing upon each and every one of them that they have chosen the good thing to come to order themselves around your word. God, I thank you for uh, the men in our church who, have, uh, who are leading their families well, who have made sure that their families are here and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. God, already uh, righteousness is present. And God, this is a good thing. And so we celebrate that, that at Emmanuel, we have a desire for your word. I thank you that the people want good preaching and that they desire exhortations that are tethered to Scripture. God, I love that we are a church that wants to see chapter and verse. God, I know that you'll bless these things because you bless your word. God, I pray that your word would have its work, that God, we would stare into it, that we would study it, that God, we would lament when we don't have it, and that God, we would be a people that are changed. I pray that Emmanuel would be a people that is known by its light. 
God, may we just worship and praise you in this final song, recognizing that we once were in darkness, that we didn't have the word of God, that we were condemned in our unbelief, condemned by the word, condemned by creation. That as we look out and we see the mountains and we see the majesty of of the beauty of creation, that we are already condemned. But God, I thank you that your word came and it was empowered by the Holy Spirit and it regenerated this life. It resuscitated me. And that, God, I'm able to see the glory and the majesty of the God who created it all. That I'm able to worship you because of Jesus and his righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross. And, God, I pray that I'd never tire of singing and celebrating the grace of God at work in my life. God, I thank you for this people. I pray that you would bless them in 